0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Henri Loiret. He's the curator of Degas, A New Vision, which is at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston through January 16, 2017. The exhibition is the first Edgar Degas retrospective in 28 years. It includes about 200 works, including painting, drawing, photography, sculpture, and printmaking. Loiret was the director of the Louvre from 2001 to 2013, and director of the Musée d'Orsay for seven years before that. He's among the world's foremost Degas scholars, and he co-curated that 1988 show. The excellent and very entertaining exhibition catalog was published by the National Gallery of Victoria, which originated the exhibition. The MFA Houston sells it for just $35, in its own shop we will have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Toronto-based filmmaker Simone Estrin discusses her documentary short a Shift in the Landscape, which examines the present and future of Richard Serra's landmark 1970-72 earthwork, Shift. The film is on view at the Ryerson Image Center at Ryerson University in Toronto through December 4th, and will be screened at the Louvre on January 21st of next year. This is our fourth segment to feature Shift, one of the two most important earthworks in North America. Previously, we featured Richard Serra himself on the artwork, as well as artist and collaborator Joan Jonas and art historian Miwon Kwon. We'll have links to all of those segments on manpodcast.com. But first, Henri Lorette, after the break. It is easier than ever to explore art historical texts from the comfort of your home with the Getty Research Portal. This online catalog provides free access to books and journals from libraries and museums all over the world including new editions such as the Art Institute of Chicago's Ryerson and Burnham libraries, the Herzog-August Bibliothek in Wolfenbüttel, and the Warburg Institute Library in London, resulting in over 100,000 volumes available. To explore the Getty Research Portal, visit portal.getty.edu. Realist, surrealist, hippie, punk, icon Bruce Connor, It's All True, is on view now at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Connor, a famous prankster and master of multimedia, was a visionary of San Francisco's art scene but could not be defined by any one movement. Experience over 250 works from this provocative artist's incredible output, including film, assemblages, paintings, photograms, and more. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. We've got a live show to announce. Please join Eduardo Beswaldo and me at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden on November 4th at 6.30 p.m. Biswaldo has been a regular on the international annual circuit in recent years, exhibiting at biennials in Montevideo, Lyon, Venice, and more. The Hirshhorn recently acquired Biswaldo's 2012 sculpture, The End of Ending, an enormous, nearly room-filling installation that combines sculpture with staging and a certain psychological presence. It's on view in the museum now. Eduardo Biswaldo live at Washington's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, Friday, November 4th at 6.30 p.m. Hope to see you there. And we're back. Henri Loiret. welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you. Welcome.
0: The last major Degas retrospective was put together almost 30 years ago now in 1988. What have we learned since then? What is important to highlight now that it might not have been possible to, to discuss or present 30 years ago?
1: You know, the 1988 uh, retrospective was the first since the 30s. So it was co- something very special. And at that time, we insisted very much on the chronology of the work by Degas because it was not very well known. And if you look at the whole carrier of Degas, some aspects of his work, for example, at time was thought were not very well known. For example, photography was, you didn't have a catalog for photography and, and it was the, really the first exhibition where photography was, was uh, included and uh, not considered only as a kind of documentation. And you could say the same for the late work. And the late work at that period was, I won't say despised, but not not very well considered. So it was the first time you had a global view on on, on, on the artist. And for, from that point of view, I guess it was a quite an important exhibition. We worked together with Jean Box, We used to be the director of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. He was at that time in Ottawa. With Garrett Intero, my dear friend, was now the director of the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in in, in Houston, with Douglas Gruick, who became later the director of the Art Institute in Chicago, and with Michael Pentez, who was a curator at the National Gallery in in Ottawa. And I have to say, we brought together a lot of new material, and the catalogue of this exhibition is still something which, as from my point of view, or from, from the point of view of many scholars, is still something important. And after that exhibition, many uh, scholars worked on Degas. Um, you had a lot of exhibitions uh, dealing with his work, but not, never a retrospective, you know. It was thematic exhibition, Degas and dance, resources, landscapes, and so on. Or, or about material, for example, Degas and photography, monotypes more, more recently, for example, even in New York, or, or uh, different periods of his work, uh, early work, late works, and so on. So. We thought it was time to reconsider the work of Degas from the beginning to to, to the end and more than a quarter of a century after.
0: You mentioned photography and the late work. We'll get to those a little bit later on, maybe a little more in sequence. You spent, of course, 12 years as the director of the Louvre, a museum which plays a role in French art to French artists, especially painters, unlike anywhere in the United States plays a role in American painting, maybe anywhere. And the Louvre was particularly important to Degas throughout his his career. At the age of 19, he first received permission to copy paintings there. And 50 years later, he was still doing it.
1: Yes, surely. You know, the Louvre is really what Cézanne said, you know. It's the great book where we all learn to read. And that's true for Cézanne, that's true for Degas also. He studied at the Louvre as a young student, and, uh, but he went back to the Louvre in his, uh, all, all over his life and he always learned from 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 old masters and it's something which is uh, which is uh, very important in his career and uh, when he tried to teach something to young pupils, you know he he went with them uh, to, to 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 the Louvre and it was always something very important for him.
0: I'd like to ask you for examples of of two paintings, one that you think Degas made early in his career that's a good example of what he learned from or borrowed from the Louvre, and then a second one from much later in his career, from from maybe the, you know, from near the end when he's still using the Louvre. I
1: think uh, I would say it's not, I mean, it's uh... All these paintings are to do with, with ancient masters. You know, he said, in other times, different times, I would have painted Suzanne Aubin, uh, Suzanne at the Bath. And it exactly, renewed completely, but keeping the same models in a way was history paintings um, uh, before. And it's something, something which is uh, very important. He was always, always thinking to, 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 to old masters. And his work says that, but also, for example, his collection, when he tried to build a collection, he, 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 you know, he bought and uh, acquired works by artists. We were thinking like him, and we were doing the, the same kind of painting in a way. For example, like was or Delacroix, who were both very important uh, models for him.
0: Well, you mentioned Angra, and I wanted to talk about Degas' portraits. Degas, paints a lot of portraits early on, both of individuals and eventually of groups. He's not painting them on commission because he's really not selling a lot of work, if, if any work really, in his early years. Why, why does he get started with or gravitate toward portraits? Is it specifically because Angra interests him and, and he's working through Angra or is it something else?
1: That's one of the reasons and also Degas uh, is always a meaningful artist. He tells a story, for example, when you look at the portraits he made from from his sister uh, Thérèse, for example, it's the whole story of Thérèse which appears in the different portraits he uh, did of of her. And also the, uh, the portrait is a kind of laboratory for his diverse experiences on, on modern life, you know, to integrate a a model in, uh, as he said in an in interior, who, who, which says a lot about his condition. For example, uh, what he is doing, what he thinks, what is his social level, and so on. So it's always, I mean, it's always, it's it has to see with the, with the scenes of contemporary life. It's not only portraits. I mean, it's uh, it's much more than that.
0: A good example of maybe a portrait that shows contemporary life is the portrait of Henri Rouard at the Carnegie in Pittsburgh. The man with a, a top hat in front of I think his factory in the background?
1: His factory, yes, in the uh, factory was in Paris and he painted him uh, twice, you know, as in industrial I don't know how you say it in English, but and 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 also as a collector later. So the two aspects of uh, of of Henri Rouart.
0: As Degas is making portraits in the 1860s, is he looking at anybody other than Angra, or is it pretty much all about about Angra? No, no.
1: Every, I, I would I would say everybody, which is not true exactly, but he is looking of, at Ang, of course. And for example, the Bellini family, very much inspired by by Ang, but also at Van Dyck. For example, discover Van Dyck going to Geneva uh, on his trip back to Paris after his uh, journey to 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 to, to Italy but uh, also Holbein, for example, and all the Quattrocento masters. And uh, it was very much inspired at that time, and it was also the taste of his father by his masters. And all over his life, you know, he studied Raphael, Carotto, uh, Pantania, Piero, and so on, something which was very important for me.
0: You mentioned the Bellelli family, which is a kind of group portrait. It's at the Musée d'Orsay. I dare say, after having read the catalog essay, it's a particular favorite of yours.
1: Yes, for a long time, you know. It's a painting. Well, I mean, it's a kind of painting. You know, I'm working on Degas for 40 years, and every time I work or rework on him, I discover new things. And when I wrote the catalog in 88 about about the Bellelli family, and I did it even before when I made an an exhibition on Degas in Italy, I thought it was really a, a Quite early work, but now I date it uh, later. You know, in 60, really in 67, and made for the salon at that time. So it's not exactly a very early painting. It's a later painting, and when I consider it in this at that period, you know, it's 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 it means something. just after Angre's death. It's a kind of homage to 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 Inge and in in the painting of its time you know if you compare it to, to very fashionable artists like Tissot, for example it means something and the guy wants to say to say something he doesn't want to be a fashionable painter he wants to to recall always the spirit of uh, the old masters it's a wonderful painting wonderful painting and very moving you know and uh, I don't know what is is, what would be the word in English Degas wrote, you know, I'm, I'm doing a tableau. A tableau is not exactly a painting or, you know, it's it's that that means it's a work which is very ambitious, with the ambition to present it to the crowds, I mean, to present it to the salon. So it was something very special for him He worked on it for for almost 10 years, you know, and working and reworking and finally he did this great canvas. But it's really a tableau. That means it's not only one painting among others. It's it's more meaningful than that.
0: One of the things that really jumps out of your catalog essay is that Degas hoped to exhibit it in the 1859 Salon um, when, when he was ab- about 25. And, and like you said, it took him you know almost a decade to finish. It's an unbelievably ambitious painting for a 25-year-old. <laughs> Do you have a guess or an understanding of why it took so long for him to finish and indeed well why I he guess stuck he with
1: started. Well, I guess he started in fifty uh, nine he worked on it in in, in in perhaps in the beginning of the sixties he went back to Florence in the in sixty for example, and he made a drawing after his uncle and after that, I think he stopped and he was working in the early sixties mainly on his three paintings. We have few in the exhibition and after that when he started to exhibit at the salon in sixty five with an history painting which is a marvellous painting. it's not exactly a painting, it's it's between a painting and a drawing. Scene of war during the Middle Ages, which is in, uh, in in Houston, with all the preparatory drawings which are fantastic. And after that he, he, he chose to, 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 to show at the salon different kind of works. In 65, he showed this history painting. Then he moved to a portrait. Then he moved back to another portrait, and so on. So he was trying to balance what he was presenting at the at the, at the salon. And at that time, in 67, he decided, I think, to exhibit this uh, this important canvas. And I think he, he he did it at that time. Really, he had sketches only, but the ambition of a great painting uh, ended at that time.
0: Degas finishes the Bellelli family in 1867, and it's it's shortly after this that he begins to become more involved in in the Parisian art world. and And of course, maybe the most important other painter to him is Manet, and they begin to become important to each other in this time in the late 1860s. How was Manet important to Degas? What did what did Manet mean to him?
1: I mean, it's, it was really, I mean, he, he was a painter he admired. And there was always a kind of, he was a kind of rival also. They were always fighting. And, and uh, I mean, they were the same kind of, of men, you know, uh, bourgeois, well-educated, and so on, the same milieu, something which was very important for Degas, you know. He could speak with Manet, they knew the same kind of person, and so on. And, for example... Madame I Manet loved music like like Degas and Degas' father, where, where they were sharing the same friends, the same salon, and so on. So there was something with, which connect the, 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 the two artists, obviously. It was not the case with the other impressionists, for example. He had no links or not real links with Renoir. And, uh, perhaps later with Pissarro, but no, nothing to do with Cezanne, with Renoir, with Cisley, all all all, all these artists. So it was a very different a circle, I would say. But Manet, uh, you know, there always a fight between Manet and Degas to to know what would be the first to paint a uh, modern life. And and uh, Manet said, you know, uh, I was painting modern life when uh, when Degas was still painting history painting, which was not true. Because, for example, if you consider the resources, Duggar painted resources much more before uh, Manet did it. So it's, it's, uh, but there was always this kind of rivalry between, between the two, the, the two artists. But anyway, Duggar considered that Manet was a great painter. He told it after his death. He was a more important artist than we thought, he said. And he was a very active collector of his work. And it's surely, you know, sometimes we, we need to do press and exhibition even if it's difficult of a relationship with, between Manet and, and Degas. It's a little bit like uh, Degas Picasso, uh, um, uh, like um, uh, Matisse Picasso, and, and, uh, but it's something really interesting. But we're thinking about painting it in, in a very different way. Manet was really going from one masterpiece to the other. You know, it's always a close work. You have the Olympia, the Lension of the Grass, and so on. With the guy, it's much more open work. He was working and reworking uh, all his work. And it's something which is very obvious at the end, where, I mean, it's it's... You cannot distinguish a single work. You know, it's an admirable theory of, of work on the same theme and so on, doing and redoing, reworking and kind of variation, infinite variation on the same theme. It's nothing to do with the art of Manet.
0: You know, you mentioned Matisse Picasso. Those are two guys who would very consciously make paintings of similar subjects taking dead aim at a particular painting made by the other painter.
1: And it's striking to see that how, how much Degas and Matisse, sorry, and, and Picasso admire both Degas. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you you have examples in the exhibition. For example, the the red paint, red, red admirable painting, of red and white from the National Gallery, La Coiffure, belong to Matisse. And all the brothel scenes which are in the exhibition uh, belong to, to, to Picasso are now in the uh, Picasso Museum in Paris. So Degas was a common point for these artists, like Ingres and Delacroix was uh, for uh, Degas.
0: In the Bellelli family, the use of mirrors and the use of Degas' own drawing on the back wall is something also that Matisse just must have absolutely loved. In the in the portrait Degas and Evariste de Valerne from 1865, the way Degas moves the hand around the foreground sitter's knee. Would have been something Matisse would have found value in. Are there are there specific paintings where Degas and Manet are are specifically talking to each other, or is it more broader than that, more kind of thematic? I mean,
1: you have it, for example, if you consider the double portrait Degas the, the made of of Manet and his wife which is now in Kitakyushu in Japan, and it's not in the exhibition, but it's a famous masterpiece by Degas. It gave it to Manet. It's a fantastic painting, and Manet was not happy with the figure of his um, wife, and Suzanne Manet was not a very pretty woman, and he decided to cut it, you know, and and, and Degas was furious when, when he saw it, and he took it uh, the painting back, and he. he he didn't let it to 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 Manet, but if you consider this painting, for example, it's very close to painting a portrait by Manet of his wife, which is now in the in the Musée d'Orsay, and we could say the same for the races, for example, the example by Manet and the example by Degas, very, very close and very different also. So it's it's interesting, and we could say, for example, also for for the use by Manet of pastel later. The Basser, for example, or to com- you can compare, for example, a beautiful painting by Manet, which is in the National Gallery, Washington, La Prune, and with the, uh, the Lapsinthe by Degas, which, the, which is in the Houston exhibition. So all along their career, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the artists who are dialoguing together, and, and, and it's something which is, uh, which is important. Manet and Degas. Manet was really a great—I won't say a great model for 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 Degas, but he looked carefully at the work of 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 Manet, and also at the um, at the relationships of Manet, for example, and he was very jealous in a way of the relationship between Manet and Zola, and Zola, as you know, admired a lot a lot Manet, and Manet did his portrait. But Zola didn't did not um, admire Degas, and and Degas was very anxious about it. So he tried to try in in a way uh, Zola to to make a painting like Zola could like it, and and, and this wonderful painting called Intérieur, Intérieur, which is now in in in, uh, in Philadelphia. So it's it's it's. I mean, it's not. I mean, you have to consider it's not only Manet and Degas, but it's all. All what happens around this artist at that time. The question of the question of strategy, you know, it's something we we normally we we don't look carefully at it, but it's very important for artists. And Degas and Manet, <laughs> from that point of view, were were very active in this field.
0: That provides a good entree into horse racing, which we. Uh, mentioned a couple times. Degas obviously interested in identifying and painting modern subjects, and, and one of his, his greatest subjects is horse racing and the scene that, 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 that pops up around it. Is, is that the full and total story of Degas' interest in horse racing, or is he just as interested in, say, uh, Maisonnier's example, Maisonnier being just a, a horse nut of, of the highest order?
1: He's interested in movement, I think. You know, movement and the colors of the jockeys and so on. I mean, it's not really interested in in, in uh, race horses. I mean, it's, it's it's and when you look carefully, for example, race horses and and more and more towards the end, you know, they. It's, I mean, something you, I mean, it's not a race or scene. I mean, they, they, all these horses are walking by the country, you know, you don't know. In the middle of nowhere, there is, I mean, no tribune, nothing. I mean, it's 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 very strange, finally. So what, what I mean, and when you look carefully also at race horses, it's much more like dance scenes, you know, like, uh, it's like a ballad in a way and all these scenes are very close so i think it's it's most of the time it's not interesting to use a semantic entry for 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 Degas he paints in a way the resources scene like the ballet scenes and and it's it's exactly for him the same kind of of subject
0: i mean that almost kind of suggests that Degas wasn't all that interested in horses but at the same time he does all those sculptures of horses sculptures he does in a way to help him work through painting horses so he has a certain interest in horses i guess
1: he has a certain interest in in horses so that's, that's, uh, sure. But I mean, it. I don't think he went to the resources, I mean, very much. It's not true with the ballot, for example. But it's exactly in, in a way what, what he said about ballot, you know. Later he said, I, I paint so many of his, uh, dance exams that it would be good for me to see one, one at least. And, uh, that means he painted without seeing it before. So it's, it's exactly, it's also a subject of imagination, I would say.
0: My guest is Henri Loiret. We'll be right back after a break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents In Real Life, 100 Days of Film and Performance. Now through January, head to The Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including... Tragil Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, Janine Oleson, Laura Schnitger, Simone Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology from Artists Film International, Echo, the videos of One O Otrick's Point Never, and related works How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier. And the workshop years, Black British Film and Video after nineteen eighty one. Find a schedule and details for in real life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Wexner Center for the Arts at the Ohio State University is the only Midwest venue for Leap Before You Look, Black Mountain College, nineteen thirty three to nineteen fifty seven. On view through january first. This immersive exhibition spotlights an experimental school and its extraordinary impact on contemporary art, with works by 90 artists including Annie and Joseph Albers, Buckminster Fuller, Jacob and Gwendolyn Knight-Lawrence, Robert Rauschenberg, and Cy Twombly, plus a schedule of in-gallery performances. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C., presents the first major U.S. survey of Ragnar Kartensson, hailed by the New York Times as, quote, one of the most celebrated performance artists anywhere. Spellbinding, poignant, and humorous, this unprecedented solo exhibition brings together live endurance theater, immersive video, music, photography, and painting to introduce U.S. audiences to one of today's most exciting and evolving artists. Now on view at the Hershorn, Visit hirshhorn.si.edu for more. And now back to my conversation with Henri Loirat. Degas paints horses and the ballet over over many decades, and I'm skipping around a little more than I meant to, but I I, I do want to get back to 1870. Degas' wealthy father supported him for a number of years, particularly in those early years when Degas was selling nothing. And you write in your catalog essay that it was only when Degas painted uh, The Orchestra of the Opera, an 1870 painting, uh, when Degas was 36 years old, that his family felt like he had done something that they were satisfied with his achievement. Why? Why? What about that painting worked for for his family and got him? Because over- the,
1: the, 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 that's the problem of Degas guy, and something that many people do not understand. You know, the the idea of what is a, a a painting which is finished is not the same for at that time. You know, for for the. Uh, usual crowd and 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 and, him. and uh, if you look at many paintings they seem to be unfinished and for Degas they are finished. And I guess that the family, the Degas family had exactly the same opinion. And and, and finally they thought when they saw the portrait of Desire Dio, the, the Orchestra the orchestra de l'Opera that he finally had done, done, done a painting, finished a painting, which was not true, because he exhibited several paintings at the Salon before. But they thought really, for the first time, or perhaps not the first time, but I mean it was the second or third painting, he could, he could sell, you know, so it was something new finally. Finally, after so many years, he, he became a painter who, who could sell his works, and he didn't take uh, too much care of it before.
0: Did that approval mean a lot to Degas, or was it?
1: Yes, it was important. The, the what what his father thought is something which is which is uh, very important. He loved his father. You know, Degas was an artist who who, who didn't learn so much going through the usual, I, I think, uh, uh, schools of uh, beaux and, and and so on. He learned with a few masters, but really few and he learned mostly looking at paintings and uh, seeing different examples we quoted ag but it could be for the same for for old masters in 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 in, in the louvre and uh, from that point of view the what what his father recommended was uh, was very important his father for example wanted him to study carefully the italian master of 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 uh, renaissance and so on so he encouraged them very much, and and uh, he didn't want to to disappoint his his, his, his father. It was his, it was quite important for 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 him.
0: You mentioned that uh, Degas was certainly exhibiting at salons before he earned his family's full approval, and and that Degas was exhibiting paintings that. In, in traditional terms, weren't considered finished or didn't look like they were finished. I thought it was really interesting in your essay that you noted that Degas frequently submitted long lists of paintings he would exhibit in salons. Those lists would be published in the catalog, and then Degas would fail to deliver everything <laughs> Yes, that is exactly
1: Exactly. Um, <laughs> from the beginning to the end of his life, he proceeded in the, in the same way. <laughs> You <laughs> will say I will do it, and it never did, did what, what we, uh, somebody could uh, could expect, you know. And uh, from my point of view, it's, it's it was difficult to trust. I would
0: say. Was there a reason he did that? Was he just such an inveterate? He was like that, you know.
1: He was like that. So it's you know, it's when he wanted to do it really and inscribe it in the catalog, and finally he had no time to do it, or he was late, or he was thinking to something else, and and finally didn't show the the work he announced, and that that happens frequently during all the uh, impressionist exhibitions. Is something which is. Uh, Um, uh, very frequent, and and for many visitors, very troubling, you know.
0: What is scientific realism, and why why is it important in Degas' work?
1: Well, it's difficult to define, you know. It's what he tried to do at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, you know, looking carefully at certain types, and and uh, trying to translate painting or sculpture because it's also the case of the uh, little Fourteen dancer and well, i mean it's something you you know it uh, trying to it has to do with physiognomy and 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 so on And all of the studies which were published at that that time and the uh, guy was studying very carefully all these uh, reviews and and studies and so on and it was important during a short time for him, really a short time, and and after that, you know, it's very strange. For example, when when the all the essays by Muybridge and were were published, he looked carefully at it because I mean it gave finally the real movement of the uh, of the horse. He did a few drawings, and after that, he came back completely to what he did before and what all the painters were doing, you know. So with uh, Finally, a false movement of the of the of the horse, but he didn't care. What was important, really, is was I mean the the uh, the idea of the uh, of a painted horse.
0: One of the things that interested him, I guess, in in terms of scientific realism, was the idea that someone's face and facial features and bone structure could reveal something about them uh, in terms of their profession and who they were.
1: Yes, but he, he, thought, he thought about it since the beginning, you know. We were speaking of a portrait and he said really that, you know, when you look at the face of somebody, it tells a lot about his personality and what he's really and so on. So it's more, even stronger, I would say, with uh, some works at the end of the the uh, 70s, beginning of the 80s. Sometimes they're close to caricature, you know. It's, and Daumier is not far away from, 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 from the guy. And Daumier was an artist the guy admired a lot, and it's really something very, something, something very, very special. But it was in a way common. You know, when you read the literature of a time, you see um, um, when you read, for example, Zola, when you read Wismar at the beginning, and so on. They, they were all thinking the same. You know, you, you can't see on the face <laughs> uh, you are being, looking at. I mean, what, what, what happened really, and what kind of person you have in front of you.
0: Well, that brings us to uh, the sculpture you mentioned a moment ago, Degas' 1881 sculpture, The Little 14-Year-Old Dancer, which is so famous, so beloved, especially in the United States. We tend to celebrate its beauty now, but at the time it was not received anywhere near as warmly. How was it received when Degas first exhibited it, and and why was it? What are some of the reasons it didn't get over? Very
1: badly, very badly, you know, because for for many different reasons, I think— you have to imagine, first, it's not a bronze like we see now and everywhere, except in Washington because they have the original sculpture. It's a wax, it's a wax uh, reproducing the flesh of a of uh, of a of a model with a true ribbon, true tutu, true shoes, and so on. So it's, it's uh, for many persons, it was not, uh, they say it's, it's not sculpture. We were used to, to marbles and stones, you know, sometimes wood sculpture, but never, never to that kind of sculpture. And many say, you know, it's like Madame Tussaud; it has nothing to do with, with sculpture, but with anatomic models. And, and that's, that's interesting because for us it's, it's Kind of revolution in, in, in sculpture, and when you look at so many sculptures in the 20th century, many are coming from the uh, guy, little 14-year-old dancer. That's the first reason, and uh, the second reason, you know, is what we said previously. You know, this when you look carefully at this model, she seems. I mean, you see that she will become a prostitute. I mean, this uh, this little uh, 14-year-old dancer, has all the the I um, would do say in English, les traits, the 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 uh, I mean, the signs of of, of a such a prostitute, looking at her face, her lips, and so on. So it's it's it was obvious for 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 many people in in relationship with what happened at the opera at at, at that time. And for me, it's something I read in um, I write in the catalogue, I think for the first time. The idea of wax was also very close to death. You know, it was, I mean, it's, it was between life and death. And it was something very morbid, very uh, uh, difficult and very uh, disturbing in a way for the viewers, you know, it's like Olympia by Manet. Uh, what is shocking for the audience at that time with Olympia is not only, uh, it's not she's a prostitute, which is uh, in a way obvious, it's a painting itself. It's the way it is painted, and what is shocking with the little fourteen-year-old dancer is not the a prostitute, but it's it's the wax, it's the, the sculpture itself and the novelty of the sculpture. I think
0: this is a hard thing to to quantify. When when did the public, and I guess probably starting with artists, begin to regard that 1881 wax sculpture as something significant
1: later later you know it she, she appeared at the exhibition in 81 later after the opening and then she disappeared and, and she was rediscovered when, when she was casted in the, after Degas' death, you know, so it's, it took a long time.
0: To, in the 1920s to, and 30s. In uh,
1: the yeah. 1920s and 30s, so she became, I mean, famous at that time. A kind of, of you know, very sweet, very, uh, very nice and cute image of a dancer, which is, from my point of view, not really the case.
0: So it was really the work being cast in bronze that prompted a a reconsideration of it 50 years, almost 50 years later.
1: Later, yes, exactly. But at that time, you know, in 1881, it was really a a shock for, for many viewers. And I guess it influenced a lot of sculpture at that time, you know, because it was seen by artists also.
0: We talked a little earlier about painters in the Louvre to whom Degas gravitated. Were there sculptors in the Louvre and sculptures in the Louvre that that were particularly important to him?
1: Well, he looked at everything, you know, he was looking at medieval sculpture, but also at Assyrian and Greek sculpture. Mainly, I would say, it's more antiquity than modern sculpture, uh, which inspired him. And later, you know, sculpture of his time, like Bartholomew, for example, who was a good friend of him. The relationship between Degas and Rodin. There is an exhibition now uh, in Germany about this uh, relationship. Is something which is unclear from my from my point of view. They uh, both know each other, but I, um, I don't think that Degas take a great care of uh, Rodin's work.
0: Later in Degas' life, particularly in his pastels. Degas brings in just thunderous, booming color. What what Degas himself called his orgies of color. What what brought him to making works that were just so much louder coloristically than his previous work?
1: I don't know. I don't know. It's surely pastel, and what it could do with 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 pastel. And uh, it appears at the end of of I mean in the middle of nineties. You know when. When his pastors and sometimes paintings are more simplified you know it's more striking more violent and it has to do with violence also i mean a kind of expressionism i would say which is not a good word but you understand what i mean and uh, it's exactly what happens in the in 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 the 90s it goes with, you know, all these drawings he made at that time, you know, with, with broad, with charcoals, you know, and, and something which is very different from, from than what he did, for example, in the 60s, what he called exercice de précision, very, very precise exercises he couldn't do anymore. So that's, it's something which happens later and which is very violent and it has to do also with what it was at that time.
0: in in, in, in the pastels and the oil paintings particularly on paper he lets color be line i mean there there is no there are no more black outlines around figures or forms it's just all it's just all color
1: all color all color but at the same time he was working on black and white and black and white was always something important for him and you used to say you know if i could start again my career and from the beginning i would um, i would only do black and white and it's something which is important because that includes, for example, photography in, in this exercise of, of, of black and white. Normally it's considered, you know, something very special, a kind of a hobby, you know, he had uh, during a very short period of his life. And it's much more than that, it's really part of this uh, world reflection about about uh, uh, black, black and white and it's the conclusion in a way of this, uh, of uh, what he, he tried to do in black and white.
0: That was one of the most interesting parts of the catalog for me. Um, your description of Degas' interest in photography as, quote, the epilogue of Degas' passion for black and white media, which, of course, included pencil, pencil and charcoal, lithography, and, of course, monotype, Is Americans just saw the the great monotype show at MoMA, Either but if I
1: didn't include, for example, photographs, then it is exactly the same dimash I would say. Degas from the beginning, you know, was was reflecting on this on this question. Photography is really part of its reflection and I think it's simple it's important to consider it this way.
0: You you argued for us to consider Degas' photography less as informing his paintings and more as objects in their own right.
1: Do you surely, think those, so? So he those... likes sculpture in a way, likes culture, you know. And 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 uh, he was, you know, he, he was a very special artist because he was he was a painter, surely, but he was a draftsman. He was a uh, rather, grav- uh, I would say grabber. <laughs> I don't Sculptor. know. Sculptor.
0: <laughs> Sculptor.
1: Yes, and and uh, everything. He was a photographer also and and so something is which is which was completely new at that time you know the diversity of the the very very techniques he used but it's it's also his reflection on 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 on, on on the he thinks about technique because it's really a way to 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 move on to to to, to, to propose something new i mean it's not only uh, in not only looking at new media but uh, i mean it's you want to express something new through a new technique and that's a very important part of his uh, of this art and of his
0: life one of the ways he 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 does that is there is a photograph he takes of Renoir and Stephane Mallarmé with a mirror behind the two men, and we see the camera in the mirror.
1: Yes, but only the camera, you know, <laughs> just the, the guy, just an eye, and and looking at these two men, and it's a very moving photograph, you know. And in Houston, you have the uh, the photograph which belonged to Paul Valery, and Paul Valery wrote about the guy was a friend of Degas, and and uh, I think all this story is, is, is very moving in a way.
0: Degas lives till the age of 83. He doesn't die until 1917, so he has a very long career he he, somewhat or mostly stopped working in the last decade of his life. I guess the last works he made were sculptures. How did...
1: It's difficult to know. It's difficult to know. We, we, we have in the exhibition, and the, for the first time, the last sign work is 1903. It's a pastel which is in Sao Paulo. But we know surely that he was still working in, at the end of the uh, 1910 and something like, uh, 1909, 1910 and so on so but we didn't do we do not know what he did exactly at uh, at that time uh, uh, working and reworking i'm sure there's the same kind of works and at the beginning of 1910 1911 i don't know exactly we don't know exactly when he stopped uh, he stopped working so he moved from one place to the other and that was that was the uh, that was the end you know he couldn't work anymore and and but till the end you know it's something you will say I'm quite struggled when 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 I speak of Degas, but it's it's an artist, you know. Pissarro, you know, at the at the time of the Affair Dreyfus, and but Pissarro admired, uh, war Jewish admired a lot a, a lot Degas, and he was speaking of Degas. He said Degas was moving on relentless, you know, which was not the case of many artists at that time. When you consider Renoir, for example who was at some period very lazy, you know, doing and redoing exactly the, the same thing, the same kind of products of articles, as Degas say, and something which never occurs with, with, with Degas. And I think that's, uh, that's something
0: very special. And his, his sight, I understand, began to go in his later years, and he kept working through it, or tried to.
1: Yes, because I mean, all the art of guy is also about souvenirs, about memory, you know, memory of a gesture, uh, memory of what he did previously, and working and reworking even early works. And it's very interesting the way, for example, guy is building his own career and trying to give the, uh, the right image of, uh, of his work. And when you look, for example, at what happened in the, in the 90s, the guy at that time was a very uh, celebrated painter. When he sold something, it was very expensive, you know, and, and he, didn't, he didn't need to sell very much to, 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 to acquire works of art and to have a pleasant life. And, and so he kept a lot uh, working and reworking his, his own work and working on the work of the 60s, 70s and, 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 and so on. But sometimes, you know, he was not exhibiting very much. And uh, it was very difficult to see works by the guy, you know, except in some private collections and so on. But himself sometimes tried to show to friends what he did in different periods of his life and testing in a way, trying to... To, 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 to because he was thinking of building a museum with his own work and work by by artists, he, he was acquiring so giving a kind of ID of 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 his work to the um, uh, to the people we who were seeing in, um, in 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 his studio and it's 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 something which is quite 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 interesting the way is he builds his own work and the image. He wants to give off his own work.
0: Marvelous. Henri Laurette, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers, opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Cause, Where the End Starts, a major survey exhibition of the work of the Brooklyn-based artist, organized by modern curator Andrea Carnes in close collaboration with the artist. Featuring key paintings, sculptures, drawings, toys, and street art interventions, this exhibition examines Cause's prolific career in depth, revealing critical aspects of his formal, conceptual, and collaborative developments over the last 20 years. On view in Fort Worth through January 22nd. Also, Focus, Lorna Simpson, opening at the Modern on November 19th. Welcome back. Next up, Simone Estrin, a Toronto-based filmmaker whose documentary short, A Shift in the Landscape, is on view now at the Ryerson Image Center at Ryerson University in Toronto. It'll be there through December 4th, and then it'll be at the Louvre on January 21st of next year. Take a look at manpodcast.com for a 90-second trailer of the film. Simone Estrin, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Thank you so much.
0: How did you become interested in Shift?
2: I had actually studied Richard Serra's work when I was uh, in my undergrad at McGill, and then I actually was doing an exchange abroad in Europe, and I saw his piece, The Gate in the Gorge, at the Louisiana Museum, and it was the first time I'd ever seen his work in real life, and I actually got to experience it and feel the intensity of it and I was completely blown away and it's a feeling that never really left me and when I got back to Toronto I heard from a family friend that there was a Richard Serra piece just outside of his house in King City and I went up to see it and it was Shift and it's that's how I saw Shift for the first time.
0: It's a completely amazing immersive thing. It photographs poorly famously poorly which i imagine might have been daunting to someone considering making a documentary film about it so how did you decide to try that
2: well i was actually doing a uh, mfa program here in toronto and i had just gone up to see shift and i had to make i had an assignment actually to make a short piece about something and i went up there with my camera and i just started filming it and i i actually realized you know this i had this static artwork right here that i could just spend as much time with as i wanted and that's basically how it started and i ended up making this short film about it using richard serra's own words that he had written about shift as the voiceover and making this piece i started to realize that there was a really incredible and untold story here that i really wanted to tell and From that point on, it actually, the time was, it was very, I was very lucky, I think, with the timing of it, because it was just around when um, the piece was up for the Ontario, the Conservation Review Board, and the developers had wanted to take away the designation, and I was actually able to follow the whole story and get in touch with the counsellors who were completely... Open about, you know, me making this film and really helping me out. So it was really great.
0: Well, let's talk about the film a bit. I, I hesitate to use the word structure of the film because I don't, uh, in the context of shift, that could be a slightly loaded word. But the the way you build the film is to start with the extraordinary Sarah at Pearson at, at Toronto's airport, and you make the point that the airport was built around. The Sarah. Why did you start there and what kind of rhyming echo, if you will, were you setting up?
2: Well, I wanted to start there because I wanted, you know, I was making the film for people in the Toronto area and the King City area to know that this shift was there. And, you know, starting with Tilted Spheres in the airport seemed like the obvious choice for me because I don't think a lot of people know that that is a Richard Sarah piece. But I think most people... You know, anyone who has flown outside of North America has definitely walked through that piece. And whether they think it's a bat, which I've heard, or they think it's just a like a fun sound installation, you know, everyone can most people can identify it and say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. And so I think, you know, interviewing Lee Petrie, who was a curator at the time and having her explain that
0: the curator at the airport.
2: Yeah, the curator at the airport. Having her explain that the airport, the terminal was actually built around this piece, I think just shows, you know, Sarah's Sarah's significance in the world as an artist. And to know that we had this other piece so close to there that is almost equally unac- as inaccessible in the sense that you need a plane ticket to see Tilted Spheres and you need to trespass to see Shift. But I just thought that that was a good way to, you know, have people... In Toronto, know that this was a Richard Serra piece and that there was another one nearby.
0: You also get this kind of disconcerting echo of the airport having built around a Serra and the suburbs also being built around a Serra, one of which people can access at the airport, even if it does require a plane ticket. And the other one, which is now um, behind a chain link fence, um, a huge, um, I mean, many acres of chain link fence. (laughs) Yeah. Most people know about Richard Serra's shift through aerial photography, particularly a, a photograph taken contemporary to the work's making, of the work slicing through snow on on the field in which it sits. To my mind, as a result of that picture, and so that 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 overhead picture was taken from a plane. To my mind, is is partially a result of that picture deciding for a filmmaker to decide to f- to fly over it and to show it that way is a little bit loaded and, and, and could be difficult. You you came up with a way of doing it. Was choosing to fly over the work and show it aerially something you, you thought about and then had to decide to do, or was it just something you had to do?
2: Well, it was something that I thought a film could do that nothing else could do. And I felt it was, you know, a, I almost felt it was my responsibility that if I was going to use film as the medium to show off shift, that that was something that I could do and I kind of had to do. So, uh, yeah, we got in a helicopter and we we went over it. And, you know, the film ends with Rosalind Krauss saying that no movie could ever equal the experience of actually being in shift. And I think that's really important because the point is that you do need to experience shift. It's, it's an experiential artwork, as Sarah explains, as Rosalind Krauss explains, as Cleve explains. But something that a film can do as a tool is to actually give you that aerial shot that you would never see if you were experiencing it in the land.
0: Yeah, the aerial shots come off great. I don't. I didn't. I don't mean to, to, to suggest they don't. It's it, what, what was striking about them to me, having of course seen the contemporary picture and having been on the site, is that they are totally different than both. They added a real sense of perspective and context and fall of the land that I wouldn't have gotten any other way. I mean, they're really, um, I mean, they're just totally amazing. As I mentioned in the introduction, there is an all-star cast of participants and people who who, who are interviewed and who talk on camera in the film. One of them is, is Richard Serra himself, there is a drawing on the wall behind him as he's talking. What is that drawing and how did you get it there?
2: <laughs> so, yeah, that that's just a blueprint of shift that Sarah actually had put up on the wall before I got to the interview. So that was actually totally him. And he was so wonderful. You know, he gave me a full hour of his time and I, I came in. We, it was at the Gagosian in New York and he was setting up for a show And, you know, he came completely prepared to talk about shift and it was obvious how much it meant to him. I could just really tell, you know, he had set up that blueprint. He was all ready to draw on camera. And it it was just it was really more than I ever could have imagined.
0: Sarah was 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 really great in the film. And he, he explains, in a thoroughly logical, both both logically to the brain and logically to the heart kind of way why he hasn't engaged with preservation efforts around the work but I thought the film did a really good job of making it plain that he doesn't need to be engaged in preservation arguments around the work because the significance of the work is not based on his assertion it's it's based on a much broader assertion of its of its importance and one of those one of the reasons this is an issue and, and should be a, a, a much larger issue especially in Canada is the condition of the work the film shows how, Uh, growth patterns of vegetation and such are different right next to the work than in the rest of the field. How important was it to you to show the way the work is living um, and being impacted by the landscape now?
2: Well, I think the the whole thing is, the whole experience of Shift is the way that it is, you know, interacting with the landscape and is in the landscape. And that's why I was, it was important for me to show it in different seasons after the land had been plowed. And I do think, you know, the conservation of it or the lack thereof is a huge issue. And one of the major reasons that we still need to keep fighting for shift. I mean, this is a piece that's directly embedded into the landscape and only works in that place in the landscape. And It's almost shift is almost doing the amazing thing of preserving that land simply by being there because the whole area around it is completely built up built up by these monster homes. I was there last Sunday, I couldn't believe it. Like in the last six months they've just popped up, but then you have this field in the middle of it all that's just totally preserved and shift is in it. And
0: so so shift is concrete, and because of the materials that are in the concrete when it rains and when there's moisture, vegetation is more likely to grow where shift meets the earth than in parts of the earth not touched by the concrete. That is, the, the byproducts of the concrete are acting as a fertilizer and allowing things to grow right where the sculpture meets the earth in a way that could and almost certainly will in the long run have a deleterious impact on, on the artwork. And I thought the film showed that a lot, these these patches of big bushy green weeds coming between the the earth and the artwork.
2: Yeah, you know, I guess it's that was more of a subconscious thing or, you know, I spent so much time filming Shift that I guess it just seemed part of it to me. And I it, but no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, every time there is more and more of this vegetation and I think it's totally Part of the piece and what makes what makes it, and that's all kind of part of the surprise of going up to see it and seeing how it looks different. But I mean, in terms of conservation, there are obvious, you know, cracks in it. There's parts that have crumbled off. There's even graffiti on it. So, I mean, I guess that's a whole other thing. But it's a, it's, it's important.
0: <laughs> so, what is the present and and future of of the sculpture now? What the the, the film shows. Uh, this black cyclone fence I mentioned earlier that the development company has put up around the site that wasn't there last time I was on the site I was there I mean literally probably just a couple weeks before that that, that fence went up that that fence is there otherwise what is kind of the condition of the work both in terms of on its own self but also in terms of public access to it?
2: Basically, even though King City Council did vote to protect shift under the Ontario Heritage Act in 2013, I would confidently say that its future is still uncertain. I mean, it is protected because it's in the Oak Ridges Marine, because it has this heritage designation and because of zoning bylaws. But the issue now is that the sculpture is on private land and that, you know, even since this designation, there has been no access gained for anybody to see the sculpture. And, you know, the film is great. It can show people the sculpture. But as far as, like, seeing it in real life, it's still not possible for the public. And so I think that that is the main issue, in addition to conservation, of course. And I think, you know, what Shift really brings up is the whole issue of private property and the whole, you know, what how people... How I guess how people want to
0: whether the private property right supersedes the cultural import of the artwork to the world at large,
2: yeah totally, and it's I think it's mind boggling to a lot of people that this is still the ongoing issue, but it is, and hopefully there's some kind of solution that can you know be made soon because this work deserves to be seen by everybody. It's, you know, and it's, it's just, it's just sitting there in the landscape literally. And it's, it's such a unique experience. It's such an important experience and it's something that everyone deserves to experience. And, you know, So just
0: I, to clear it up, the Ontario heritage designation means that the developer great golf cannot tear the piece out or build on top of it but it does really almost nothing else
2: yeah i mean because it is in the oak ridges marine right now like the land itself is protected so i don't think they could build anyway but that could always be revoked with a new government so yes it means that they can't tear it down which they did say they weren't going to do anyway and it does mean that the designation is part of the deed and that it would be you know very complicated to undo that so that is good. That is great. But apart from that, I mean, it's, yeah. Apart, that's, apart from yeah. that, all <laughs>
0: questions are open.
2: Yeah, basically. And I mean, the gate was, maybe I shouldn't get into this, but I, you know, I went up last Sunday. The gate was wide open because a farmer had just gone and plowed the land. So, you know, I did just walk in.
0: Yeah, it's not hard for people who want to go see it to go see it. There are, you know, there are risks and, those are not merely the risks related to trespassing i mean this time of year it's probably a little bit easier because the ground is firming up as temperatures drop to go in the spring means not only trespassing but but literally mucking through about three feet of mud just to get to it yeah it's an amazing thing but there there are um there are some issues going forward and i hope the film further raises attention about the importance of the piece if people uh want to encourage institutions and theaters near them to bring the film to their their towns? How can they do that?
2: I mean, I'll, just contact me. I would be so happy for that. I mean, I think that the film really, I, I can bring shift to people. I, I can't bring people to shift necessarily, <laughs> but, you know, I think it is a really good tool. And, you know, even last May, we, after the premiere of the film in um, June 2014, the The Friends of Shift uh, wanted to show the film in King City, so we actually spent a year organizing an event that happened last May, and it was called Richard Serra's Shift, an evening of filming conversation, and it was amazing because, you know, we were able to show the residents of King City the sculpture, many of whom didn't even know that it was there, and it was really to raise awareness about it and to celebrate it. So, yeah, I mean, I would be so happy to have it screened and... Bring it to more
0: people. It's the the best sculpture seen by the fewest people in the entire world. (laughs) Definitely. Simone Estrin, thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.